I'm spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Welcome to a new spin on autism. Answers with host and international speaker and performer, Lynette Louise. Besides working on her doctorate in psychophysiology, Lynette has raised eight children, six adopted, and four of them falling somewhere on the autism spectrum. Laugh with her, cry with her, as she talks to both experts and parents and takes you through the often confusing, sometimes frustrating, sometimes overwhelming, but always fascinating world of autism. Hello and welcome. This is a new spin on Autism Answers. I am Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, also known as The Brain Broad. And today is part two of our three-part series, wherein I am the one, the only guest, because I have so much to say, so much to share. And I really, really, really want to take an opportunity to do that with you, my people. I have been interviewed by so many folks around the podcast world and the radio world and the TV world and strangely, and book world. And strangely enough, I don't usually interview myself. So you get a lot of information from this podcast that comes via the other experts and then I throw a little something in at the end. But I do want to share in a really big way, three very important issues. So last episode, we talked about, you know, in what way ABA is reinforcing autism and making, and actually teaching you to be autistic, or more so, and the way in which uh, some of the more child-centered types of therapies actually enhance and increase the likelihood of your staying nonverbal. So um, that was important, and I'm, I just had to get that out there, and so I appreciate that you're uh, with me still. My downloads are big and heavy, so I've still got you listening. I'm really happy about that. Now I'm going to talk about something that uh, might, you know, it might rub a few people the wrong way, but whatever. Here we go. Okay, and, I, and I'm not going to do stories from the road because I'm already here and I'm already giving you stories. And so that would be sort of redundant. And as far as the okay, 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 great guess giveaway, I guess I'll give away something. So um, that'll be me too. So it's me, 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 me. Narcissism all the way. Okay. Um, Today's question. Today's question is, is becoming sensory overwhelm, is sensory overwhelm that leads to self-abuse or violent outbursts, is that inherent in autism or is that driven by the environment? Are we actually teaching the children to become more violent? My answer right off the top is yes, we are. Is it inherent in autism? Well, yes, a little bit. So let's break it down. Let's let's explain why in, in the one hand I'm saying, yes, it's inherent, and on the other hand I'm saying, no, it's our fault. Because I do think uh, in many, many, many cases, uh, most of the cases, we are increasing the outbursts, we are increasing the tantrums, we are increasing the likelihood of... Uh, basically violent behavior to one to themselves to our child our child committing it upon himself or herself or on others so let me begin by telling you a story when my son 
stories from the road is happening right at the beginning. <laughs> no. <laughs> so when my son was young, one of them, one of the many, um, but he, he was the most challenged. So you've heard about him the most. So when Dar was young, I remember he was in school and the school called me and they said, you know, what happened? We have no idea why for no reason whatsoever. He just all, all of a sudden decided to kick this little girl and he had big boots on because we lived in Canada and so he was wearing these heavy boots and the boots caused the um, kick to be pretty damaging. In fact, it pulled the skin away from the little girl's leg enough that her shin showed. So it was a very serious offense and they were really upset and they felt that it had come out of the blue, that there was no explanation, no precursor. He just hauled off and kicked her. And I remember at the time finding that really strange. And I said, you know, my son doesn't haul off and kick people for no reason. But his timing, his um, his sort of timing of events is different than perhaps yours is. So it is possible that this little girl did or said something to him three days ago. And he's built up to the, you know, worrying about it or been annoyed or, or wanted to act out and never had an opportunity until today. And so acted out when he had the opportunity and it does have a precursor. You're just not privy to it. And that's true of many bouts of violence with many children and many adults. We don't always get why it happened, but there's always a reason. So I found it very interesting that just because he had a diagnosis they wanted to say there was no reason. So I said, well, first of all, that's a possibility. And then secondly, maybe it had nothing to do with a girl. Maybe he got confused. Maybe somebody else did something and they wore a similar colored coat or had a similar smell or, you know, his sensory system is very challenged. So he doesn't see the way you see, he doesn't hear the way you hear. Um, to say that there's no precursor is kind of, giving yourself the excuse not to be a detective to the situation and to figure it out. And finally, he comes from a family of eight children and does not ever physically accost anybody. The most we get is when he's frustrated. He'll push his face into us and sometimes pushes his head on our forehead. And I think one time he had butted one of my kids. But he he's really not... A super violent kid. I mean, in the history of his life, he was in about 11 at this time. So in the history of his life, to say those are the only events is, is a pretty big deal. And so they wanted to then say, well, he doesn't behave that way for you because you control him. And instead of going, wow, well, let's figure it out, they tried to pass the buck and not deal with the question of why did it happen. So where does this, um, what does this mean? What, you know, you hear stories like this all the time. I've had guests come on and they've told stories like this and they've been frustrated and stuff. So I want to break it down because I go now into the world, all over the world, and see these cases and see violent kids. And it's really not that hard to get it to change. So let's break it down. In my son's case, as in many, 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 many kids' cases, especially on the spectrum of autism, he did have sensory issues. And so 
it is true that he would at times be completely uncomfortable and want to punch himself in the face or punch his head. And to me, those were moments where he was trying to help himself because perhaps his face felt all numb or perhaps he was getting a headache or, you know, and as things unfolded, as the story unfolded and as I learned about other kids and as I dealt with issues of my own having been on the top of the spectrum just a little bit, um, I discovered many things that cause a kind of desire to hurt yourself that isn't hurting you. So in other words, um, I'll give you another story. There's a boy that I was working with who would get terrible gas. And if you've ever had really bad gas, it hurts. It feels like you're having a heart attack and somebody's stabbing you in the back and it can give you a terrible headache. And and it doesn't make sense to you. You know, one minute you're fine, the next minute you've got this horrible pain in your chest, in your back, in your throat, in your head. And it feels like your body just attacked you. And one of the things that you'd want to do is rock and burp or or hit yourself in the chest or and so he would when this would happen and remember it's a spectrum kid so there's all kinds of digestive issues so the fact is most of your kids are having some of these issues and so when it would happen he would throw he would just scream and throw his body against a counter well, if you're giving yourself the Heimlich, that's a really smart move. So I don't see the difference, really. He's got sudden pain, and he knows that if he can dislodge the gas, that he'll feel better. He's learned it from experience, and he's trying to help himself, and everybody's stopping him. Not only were they stopping him, but they were laying him down. So here he is in all this pain. He's having to lay down, which is increasing the pain. And then, of course, he starts to act out and scream and kick, and, and everybody goes, I don't know what's wrong. And I'm going, well, it looks like he has gas. Why don't we help him with that? So, yes, there is an inherent problem. We do have issues in the gut. We do have um, issues where the sensory system could suddenly create a kind of le restless leg syndrome, for example, and now the person has to walk constantly because their legs feel numb, and they might start hitting their thighs or hitting their shins. And, you know, yes, 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 that can look like uh, self-abuse when, in fact, it's not. It's self-help. It's a way of trying to correct the situation and restabilize your system. And we're jumping in there and stopping them and saying, don't hit yourself. Don't walk all the time. Don't run into the counter. You know, so when these things happen and we're stopping them and they're in a panic, they're going to act out or give in. Either way is not going to be a healthy response. So in the sense, uh, in the, as far as the question goes, in the question of is uh, the violence inherent in the spectrum disorder, the answer is discomfort is inherent in the spectrum disorder. And becoming uh, physically active in order to help yourself is inherent. And so you might you might check out, you might become lacking in activity. You might go, oh my goodness, I feel dizzy and sit down and not move as well. But the point is that, yes, I, I, I can buy and I can sell the concept that the child 
on the spectrum is uncomfortable and is therefore um, having to hit themselves or bang themselves or rock themselves or jump up and down for themselves or bite themselves. Um. Or like my son just did, go, oh, <laughs> dark, can you be quiet so I can do this? So, yes, I, 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 I'll go with that. But let's, let's look at the other piece because the other piece is our fault. And I've sort of told a little bit of that in the, you know, this one boy who's having so much pain is being held prone and his pain is being increased. And it, now he probably wants to vomit and his heart is racing and his, He's sweating and, you know, it's just gotten way out of hand. And so he's in a real bind and starts acting out on us or the parents or whoever's holding him down. So I, I do see where, in a very direct sense, we increase the discomfort often. And when we increase the discomfort, uh, cause the child to then become violent. There's also often a case where we don't increase the discomfort by how we act, but we don't help it either. So the child's left to flounder. And so, you know, hitting himself in the head, running into the counter, biting himself, putting a blanket over his head, you know, all of those things, by the way, are very useful. If you're oxygen carbon dioxide levels are off and you put a blanket over your head you might stabilize it it's very similar to um when somebody breathes into a pa brown paper bag because they're hyperventilating so children that do these things are usually helping themselves and we get in the way and it turns into violence it looks violent initially but usually it's not um in the sense that they're not so much trying to hurt themselves as they're trying to help themselves. Now, sometimes we hurt ourselves to help ourselves. So um, if someone's having a lot of pain, let's say they're having a lot of pain in their arm. And one of the ways to get the pain to be less evident is to create a different sensation somewhere else. So it's something, it's called the pain gate theory and it's something that your dentist does. He shakes your cheek before he sticks the needle in so you won't feel the needle because you're already feeling the shaking of the cheek. And our brains can only, you know, take in the one sensation at a time. So um, if you are having a problem and then you make a bigger issue or a more pronounced issue somewhere else, you can give yourself some relief. And, and that's very likely. Perhaps the child is having a headache and so hits their leg because that helps their headache. Point is, you to assume that you should just stop them is to lose the opportunity to figure out what's going on and also to increase their, their discomfort and not let them help themselves and end up, you know, with them acting out on you. So you want to be a detective. You want to check into it, figure it out, ask good questions, be as useful as you can, and keep them as safe as possible because they really could hurt themselves while they're trying to help themselves. And so there is a truth in that. There are times where you're going to want to stick a pillow between the floor and the head bang or that, you know, I'm not saying don't take action. I'm saying take action with awareness. Okay, so... Uh, however, myself, usually I say, well, you know, if I was you, I wouldn't bang my head on the floor. That's going to hurt. Why don't you bang your head on this wooden thing? It's just going to make a lot of noise and give you a different sensation. So using this kind of knowledge makes it so that you're more user-friendly and you can actually help and give ideas to a child that will make it so that they can get what they're needing without actually doing any damage. So by not getting upset, 
yourself, you don't increase it, you don't make it worse, you don't then um, have them start acting out on you, and you do make it possible for you to become user-friendly and helpful and not leave them floundering. So that's the one part of the question, which is, you know, is it coming from the child themselves? Is it coming from their discomfort? Is it coming from their sensory system? Is it coming? Yes. Yes, it is. Some of it is. But here's the other part, and this is a really, really important point, and I'm really going to try and help you to understand it. But first, I want to remind you, you're listening to a new spin on Autism Answers. I'm Lynette Louise, your story teacher host, otherwise known as the Brain Broad. And today's question is, violence, is it inherent in autism or is it us? Today, I am on episode two of a three-part series wherein I am my one and only guest because I really want to tell you what I think and I think I can help you to understand some things that might really make life in your home easier and better. It certainly did in mine and in many others. Um, So I do want to give you something. I want to offer up something. Let's... um, Let's offer up my book. If you send me an email... To which one do I want to give you today? Um, actually, I'll give you both of them. Send me an email to mom number four evermore at juno j u n o dot com and put episode two giveaway and give me your address. If you're the first person, I will give you miracles are made, a real life guide to autism, and the wing maker, and I'll even pay the shipping. So first person up gets it. Okay, so there, I was the okay, okay, great guest giveaway, and I am the great guest, I am it today. So, of course, we don't need to do stories from the road, because the whole thing's my story from the road. Okay, here we go. Okay, and what way do, other than the one I already described, you know, where we're trying to help the child who seemingly is hurting themselves, and we're trying to stop it and end up making them more uncomfortable. In what way are we creating a scenario by which the child becomes violent? So let's talk about that a little bit because I see it and see it and see it. I go into the home a lot and a lot of the time the kids are violent and a lot of the time all it takes, and I mean all it takes, is talking to the child as if they are the age they are with the intelligence they would have at that age. In other words, age appropriately talking to them and explaining what I see, what I mean, what I'm going to do, why I'm going to do it, and how wonderful I think they are. And I know most people think they are doing that. And they say, but I love my child. I tell him I love him and he still hits me. It's not as simple as that. So I'm going to try really hard to break it down a little bit. Here's the, here's the scenario. You have a child who you love and he's 12 and, or she is 12 and starts um, hitting people, say, um, and you can't see it coming, you know, and you're like, I don't know what's going on. One minute we're, we're you know, doing lessons and the next minute they're all of a sudden grabbing my hair and pulling it and hitting me in the face. But when I come in and I watch, what I see is many points where the child was displaying that they were uncomfortable. And 
people are continually asking them to handle their discomfort and to continue to do the lesson or to continue to sit in the chair or to continue to uh, be quiet. Whatever it is, there is a point at which they can't. And in the moment that they can't, since none of their um, limited language has been accepted, or even if they did use full sentences, they've still been asked to stay at it and told there's no choice, um, they're really left with nothing to do but hit you because they're uncomfortable. And they've hit the point where they can't do what you're asking them to do. And as a child gets bigger and they get more hormonal, they're already full of much more discontent, regardless of disabilities. Um, so they start to have all this hormonal angst and all of these issues and all of these growing pains and all of these problems. And we continue to ask a lot of them. And we're asking more than, it's like heroic what these kids put up with and try to do. So you'll have a child sitting there and and he might have or she might have said uh go 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 right or stop now stop now or whatever their way of of speaking is they might have full speech and say i want to quit now i don't want to do it whatever and we say well you have to uh because of this and this and this and they're a child who's now so uncomfortable they cannot comply so i want you to imagine you're about to throw up. You're sitting at a table. You're trying your best. You're at a dinner table. You're dressed really nice. Everybody's dressed really nice. It's a really important dinner for you. You've uh, planned and planned to meet these people. You're trying to impress them. It could change your future. I mean, it's important. You really badly want, very badly want to make a good impression. But you have gotten a touch of food poisoning. And you don't have the ability to prevent yourself from vomiting. At first you think you do. You're sitting there. You're trying to talk nice. You're trying to respond. Now they're saying things to you and you're fake responding. You have no idea what's being said. You're smiling. You're nodding. It's probably inappropriate. They're looking confused by your reactions. And suddenly you either leave the table or you vomit all over everything. You had no choice. Your only choices were to say, I'm, you know, to own it and say, I'm sick. I'm going to leave. Or risk this mess you made. Because you're trying to comply, you're trying to fit into the social network that you set yourself into, you over-expected from yourself and ended up in this place where you threw up all over everybody, all over the food, made a big mess, and first had everyone completely confused by your responses because you seemed very stupid because nothing that you were nodding to should have been nodded to. And you were just trying to hide your state. This is what I believe is happening. We are asking them to behave in certain ways and they can't do it. And then finally they vomit all over us, only it looks like violence. Um, in addition, when you have a, a language challenge, everyone starts to talk down to that child. 
they again i i often i'll say well you know he's not a baby so you're talking to him like he's three and that's probably offensive and i've said this a lot and and often hear back no we're not you know he needs to learn these words and all that no 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 Yes, he's learning language on how to speak, but that doesn't mean he doesn't already have a higher level receptive ability. So therefore, you have to speak as if the child is mature and capable and understands you and then simplify or you will insult. And when people treat you like that, you're probably not going to listen to them. Also, it gives you the message that you are unable that you you know if all the people in your world that are teaching you and helping you are treating you like you don't know you start to question your own knowledge so this is what's going on for the kids i believe addition there's many more issues here too there's um because when somebody thinks that you don't understand they then don't ask your opinion they they don't therapists parents Teachers don't give the child a chance to have input other than maybe, you know, do you want hot water or cold water? Do you want the red shoes or the white shoes? Um, they need much more opportunity than that. And here's a place where um, I'm really liking the resurgence of when my son was young, he did facilitated communication, and it really did help for getting him sort of... Um, accepted as intelligent by many people and it was a really big deal for him amongst his family members people started to sort of accept him as someone with a mind that just had difficulty bringing out his language and his responses and right now there's a thing called rpm uh, rapid prompting method which is really a new approach to facilitated communication and hopefully you know it's really the same thing but um, eventually the person hopefully becomes independent and is typing on their own and it creates a way of communicating things that were otherwise not understood um, and that the child was assumed couldn't do and what I like about that is it means that there's people again opening their eyes to the possibility of the intelligence of the child even if what the child can share or adult can share looks um, sub-level it is very likely that they are not in many many arenas even if they can't pass the test you're, you're giving them so I think that when we treat somebody like they don't have the right to have a say they get frustrated and they insist on having a say and so when they insist on having a say if they cannot verbally get it across and they can't spell it and nobody's paying attention or even letting their words matter then they're gonna hit you they're gonna hit someone they're gonna bite someone they're gonna kick someone and finally, and back on the inherent in autism, sometimes the processing visually creates sort of a startle reflex that makes it so that the child is easily frightened by things that move quickly in their peripheries. And so much like someone who is trained in martial arts might see you coming over to the side and quickly turn and be prepared to hit, 
um, the child responds very quickly to duck and run or turn and hit or kick. And that's just a startle reflex and it can be adjusted for if you notice that that's what it is. And you're not going to notice that if you're busy saying, always violent and there's no precursor and there's no reason because then you'll believe yourself. And then you'll just start trying to control his violence and medicating and the problem doesn't get solved. It just gets turned into other problems. So please, please, please think of these things. I hope I've helped you. Um, I certainly have seen it play out time and time again where I'm working with somebody who's super violent and in two days they stop. So, and that's without neurofeedback. Neurofeedback's my baby. I love it. It really helps. I used it this morning because I was feeling nervous about a call I had to make. And so I really love that I have a therapy that I can offer that helps to stabilize people's emotions so that that inherent piece, that part that might be coming from nerves or fear or even physical discomfort, I can help with. But if we only use the neurofeedback to do that and we don't change the environment and have everybody treating the child as if they're very capable and just need help getting that across, it doesn't fully work. The kids really, really, really need the opportunity to speak. And if that opportunity comes from pointing at words or pointing at items or um, word approximations or dragging you to the cupboard, whatever it is, everyone needs a voice. And your child can have a voice if you're willing to follow, like a detective, the cues that come up and not tell them what they're feeling and what they need but help them to discover what they're feeling and what they need so that they can then communicate that to you in whatever way is possible. Um, a little aside, I don't really like pecs very much. They're, they're useful when they're used as a addition to language uh, prompts and, and abilities, but when they're used exclusively, they tend to limit the child and get everyone treating them like they're not very smart. So please be careful with that. Please be aware that your child is probably way smarter than you think, or certainly most of the parents probably are going, I know my child's smart, so let's see if we can get everyone else to know it by working as a team and really communicating that to the rest of the world. I'm going to end with, hey, a story. <coughs> so I will do stories from the road. I met... Um, this young man, I met him ooh, many years ago. I think I might have talked about him on the last show. And I've just waited and waited and waited until the family was ready for me to fully inform them. Because they were, you know, we only hear what we're ready to hear. And due to other therapies that they'd done, they weren't ready to hear that uh, their child should be sort of encouraged to just interact and play and empowered. People want to teach the way that we were taught. You know, they, when we were kids, we were sat in a desk and, and taught arithmetic and history and social studies. So we make the mistake of thinking that's what we should do with our autistic kids when, in truth, our autistic kids would like to get over their problems and be helped with social skills and communication and perseveration. But, um, you know, so often we just do what we what was done for us and so we've modeled and created a way of teaching that mimics what was done for us and doesn't really work that well for autism so most people don't want to raise their child by 
just playing with them and saying, hey, you have the power, you make the choices, you, <laughs> you give me your words, you can have it. And so it doesn't look like hard enough work and they won't do it at first. And then finally, if I hang around long enough, or if, uh, if they saw the results of some other family I worked with, they'll change their mind. So uh, this is a case I um, had the opportunity to know this family for a while, and finally he hit a point where he was acting out and becoming violent, and they said, okay, you know, let's see if your way works, because we've been avoiding it. And they'd been getting my help, but just not the fullness of my help, and not letting me use all my tools. And so we set up a program and uh, five days later he wasn't violent. So there you go. That's how easy that is. And if you want proof of that, I will soon be selling the first five episodes of Fix It in Five. In fact, I'm on my way to Israel to work with a family of eight for episodes. For family three, I'm going to do five families. For those of you who don't know, Fix It in Five is me giving back to you, giving all my money to this. <laughs> so hopefully someday I'll make some back. And uh, one family a year going in and bringing the therapy and the cameras and stuff so that I can create a way to show you how this is done. Uh, the show airs on the Autism Channel, and now I've redone the edit. It's really clean and beautiful, and it's ready to, the first five for the family in Uganda are ready to be sold and hopefully make me back some money so I can continue to edit and do more families. I want to do um, five altogether from different places in the world with different problems, and two of the kids have violence issues. So the one in Israel, I don't know the results yet. I haven't gone. Um and uh, and one in, in America. So it's a beautiful series. If you want to see the first five episodes and you want to buy them, I promise by the next show to tell you how to do that because we're just setting that up in a sort of a, a website for purchase before we start sending it to things like Amazon and stuff to try and get me enough money to get uh, my bills paid after I get back from Israel because I think I'm going to be in the hole about $10,000. All right, so uh, thank you, everybody. Keep your ears on for the next episode when I'm going to tell you how to do that. Meanwhile, I hope you're the one who sends me uh, the email to mumforevermore at juno.com to get the giveaway today. I hope I've helped you. My name is Lynette Louise. I'm also known as The Brain Broad, and you've been listening to a new spin on autism. Answers. Thank you for being here, because without you, I would just be talking to myself. Thank you for joining the show today. Lynette is the author of the refreshingly honest and at times hilarious new book, Miracles Are Made, A Real-Life Guide to Autism. You can purchase this and other materials by looking on the webtalkradio.net website and clicking on the covers. You can also click through to her Facebook page and check out any show you may have missed by looking in the archives. We'll see you soon for another edition of a new spin on autism. Answers. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. Spinning in circles and talking to myself. I can't hear you.